And now, O Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of all of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our strength and our redeemer. If through the words of this human being we do not hear your voice, O God, we ask you to speak to each of us here in the quietness of the heart. Amen. In the late 1980s, early 1990s, a minister by the name of William Benton was pastoring First Baptist Church of York, South Carolina, when he received the unfortunate news that he was suffering from kidney cancer and he would have to undergo surgeries and treatments for the cancer. And in the course of that treatment, in the course of uh, going through the diagnosis and the treatment and everything, he began to think about something that had been in his mind, in the back of his mind since he was in seminary, which was preaching a sermon series about what matters most, the basic, most basic and most important beliefs of the Christian faith. And so he decided in the face of his own mortality that the time had come to talk to the, to preach to his church and talk with his church about what mattered most. And he put a series together of 15 sermons. And the name of the series was Where the Water Hits the Wheel. 15 sermons on the great beliefs of the Christian faith. He wrote in the book that later compiled these sermons, he wrote in the introduction these words, the battle to finish the job and the battle to continue life have been interwoven from the beginning. The battle to finish what we have begun and the battle to continue life have been interwoven from the beginning. Reverend Benton had a lot in common and probably greatly understood the Apostle Paul in his last letter of the New Testament that we began that we begin studying today, his second letter to Timothy, because Paul is facing his own mortality as well. He's in prison. Uh, the circumstances of the church are in, the church is in dire circumstances. He's going through great suffering, and he realizes he probably will not uh, get out of prison this time. He knows that the end of his life is probably near. And so, when we approach the second letter of Timothy, which we're going to be looking at for the rest of this month, what we are going to encounter is a man who is who is exact going through what William Benton did. What matters most? What is most important for the church to know so that they can be all that Jesus desires them to be? And Paul is writing to a young man, a leader of the church who is cultivating other leaders in the church, trying to get across to them what really matters and what will sustain them for the rest of eternity. And as we spend this next month with Paul in 2 Timothy, we spent last month journeying with Jesus in Luke's gospel, and now we've jumped ahead uh, a number of years to the years of the early church after Jesus' ascension and the, towards the end of Paul's life. And what we are doing is with Paul, we are going to work on simplifying what matters most to us as the church, what matters the most to us as children of God. And this, and this is especially, I really connected with this passage when I was preparing this week because every week as I am getting ready for, for the sermon on Sunday, when I begin preparations, as I'm thinking about it throughout the week, I have one question in the forefront of my mind. And that question is, Lord, what matters most this day, this time, from this passage? Lord, what 
is most important? What is the priority? And the truth of the matter is, friends, we have 14 verses before us today. Every single verse of Scripture, every one of these 14 verses has something to speak to us. Now, we don't have the attention span or the time that we really want to allow probably to go through and talk about every single verse, what every verse can say to us. So I want to ask you to do something. I'm going to give you an overview of what I feel like the Spirit has said we need to hear today. But I want to give you an exercise I want to encourage you to try over the next uh, couple of weeks. These are 14 verses, and and we, we know there are seven days in a week. So every day for the next two weeks, choose one of these verses. And hold it before the Lord. Meditate on it and simply ask the Lord, what do you want to speak to me today through this particular verse? And there may be a day that you look at verse, like today you may look at verse 1 and meditate on it and say, well, I really don't know what I got out of that today. I can't really put my finger on it. But then a few days from now when you read, God has not given you a spirit of cowardice. That might be exactly the word you need for what you're going through that day. And I encourage you to take that time, be it one verse a day or two verses a day over the next week. Meditate on what matters most. These are Paul's last words and, uh, to the church of that day. And they are his first words to us as the church of today of how we can live the way Jesus desires us to live. But as we journey through this passage today, I just want to look at it in three sections and bring out three points, three ideas of things for us to meditate on and to think about. In verses 1 through 7, Paul is setting up for us the basics of his letter. He follows the structure of letters of his day by saying who he is, who he's addressing, why he's writing. But this order that the letter has is so important because the church, the society, the world that Paul was speaking to felt very disordered, very uh, very unruly at that time, very frightened. It was a very frightening time to be the church because of the tyrannical leadership in the area and what Paul was going through in prison. They were going through a hard time. But in the midst of that hard time, in the midst of the fear, Paul gives them order. He gives them a letter that is ordered a certain way. And in that order, he speaks encouragement. He instructs as well. He brings conviction and repentance of sin, as we'll see in the weeks to come. And there's an order to everything he does. And it reminds me, as we're reading through this, that it's actually very similar to the order that we come into on Sunday morning. When you walked in today, you, one of our wonderful ushers handed you an order of worship. We often call this a bulletin. And I've tried... And I try to, and I do that as well, but I try to refer to it as order of worship when I can because what we are saying to you is for this hour at least of the week, for this one hour, you may not be able to leave all of your anxious thoughts at the door, but we're going to give you an order that you can enter into where you can experience, as Paul says, the grace, the mercy, and the peace of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that Paul begins this order today in verse 3 with saying, I am grateful to God whom I worship when I remember you in my prayers night and day. Friends, Paul is in dire circumstances. And the first thing he says to this church, he doesn't vent about what he's going through. He doesn't go into detail about his sufferings. The first thing he says is, let me tell you what I'm grateful for. I am thankful 
for you. He is singing a song of thanksgiving. He enters into this conversation with thanksgiving. And so it should be with us. As I've been sharing with you over the past um, few weeks of this series, a friend of mine discovered in uh, some belongings of a relative of hers an old uh, order of worship from 1963 from here in this church. This relative of hers visited here in 1963 and saved the bulletin. And inside that order of worship, the order is similar to what we have today in some ways, but there are some significant differences. And there's one in particular I wanted to bring forth to you today as we consider Paul ordering the life of the church around Thanksgiving. The very first thing in the service, the very beginning of the service in February of 1963, was the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Of course, we sing it after the offering now, and there's a reason for that as well. But this basically said, in that day and time, we are entering into God's courts with thanksgiving, coming in through his gates with praise. We are coming before him. No matter what we're going through, this order says to us that we begin with thanksgiving. And that is what God is pointing out uh, and laying out before us in this passage today, that we have to order our lives in the midst of fear, beginning with thanksgiving. Paul lays that out for us today. He gives us an order of encouragement and of living with courage and living with self-discipline and with love. And he goes on from there, beginning around verse 8 and continuing through verse 10, to bring forth another word, another idea that's so important to us, and that is this concept of grace. Grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. Amazing grace, as Jason Polly played beautifully earlier, that saved a wretch like me. Grace is one of those words that we can never tire of hearing. Paul is very careful here, though, when he talks about grace. He doesn't talk about it in generic terms. He talks about the grace of the person of Jesus Christ. Christ, grace that comes from some, someone who gave his life for us, who poured out everything for us, grace that comes about not because of anything we've done, but because of what God has done for us, grace that is greater than anything we can imagine, grace that we cannot create, nor we, that, we can, um, uh, that we can earn on our own merit. The grace that Paul writes about here is something that was already at work before we were even born. Look at the end of verse 9. I love this verse. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death. Here Paul is facing death, and he's saying he abolished death, he brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. The spirit of grace is what is the reason that we gather here. When we come together in worship, when we come together to be the church together, we are we are in the spirit. We should be in the spirit of grace because we have received grace. We should extend it as well. And you may be wondering, well, how do I extend grace to someone else? How do I extend grace and offer pardon to one another. And there are simple everyday ways that you can do that. Friends, let me give you one example um, that came up with me not too long ago. Um, And this just happened. I didn't even think about extending grace. Usually that happens. It happens when we're not thinking about it. I was supposed to meet with somebody who was running late. And, And if any of you have met with me before, you know I am very guilty of running late very often. Some of you have probably run late before as well. So when she contacted me, said, I'm so sorry, I'm running late to our appointment. Just without thinking, I said, no problem, take your time. I'll look forward to seeing you, you know, when, when you get here. That's great. 
And when, when I saw her, she said, thank you so much for the grace you extended to me. And I said, how did I extend grace to you? What did I do? And she said, you told me not to rush and to take your time. Something as simple as that, friends, when we're not even intending to, we can extend grace simply by living in that attitude of love and acceptance and humility towards each other. That is the spirit of grace that can, the spirit of Jesus Christ that can transform who we are and we can order our lives after the example of Christ so that that grace is a part of who we are. Simplifying our lives begins with recognizing that we are recipients of a grace that we can't create and we must extend that grace to one another as well. And Paul outlines that for us and concludes this this, uh, passage that we're looking at today by reminding us, as we sang earlier, we know whom we have believed and we are persuaded he is able to keep what we commit to him against that day. This pa- and the rest of the passage is all about trust, all about building up trust and trusting and confident trusting confidently in the one who has taught us and the one who is with us. And we're and Paul is saying to us as the church today, keep on trusting, keep on believing in the brilliant words of the band journey, don't stop believing. Keep on holding on to the trust and the confidence and we hold on to that trust. We grow in trust with Jesus by spending time with him, by ordering our lives after him, by living in his grace, accepting his grace, extending his grace. And as we do that, you know how it is, friends, when you become, you trust somebody else, you grow to trust somebody because you spend time with them, because you go through situations together and you learn to trust each other. And we are learning to trust Jesus each and every day. And Jesus is, and Jesus is trusting us as well to be the bearers of his gospel. And as an example, I'll use this as a closing example before we come to the Lord's table. About 20 years ago, um, the late film director Robert Altman directed a, uh, came to Mississippi and filmed a movie called Cookie's Fortune in the town of Holly Springs. And that's where the movie is set. That's where they filmed it. They talk about Holly Springs in the movie. And it's uh, a story about a woman named Cookie who everybody believes has a fortune hidden away of some sort. That's where the title comes from. And uh, this is not giving anything away. At the very beginning of the movie, uh, Cookie passes away. And uh, her best friend Willis um, finds out, and then uh, the town starts to find out uh, that Cookie has died, and there's suspicion of foul play that begins to come up. This is a southern gothic story. Uh, It's part drama, part mystery, part comedy. And uh, Willis, the best friend, quickly becomes the chief suspect in Cookie's death. And, uh, and the only thing is, Willis is good friends with the town sheriff. So the town sheriff takes him into the jail, doesn't close the bars or anything. They just all sit around the, the, local, the local jail. And they have to bring in an investigator from, and I quote this from the movie, the big city of Batesville, Mississippi, to come in and run an investigation because this sheriff just will not believe that Willis is guilty of this crime. And so the investigator from the big city of Batesville comes in and, uh, in, and, and is conducting interviews, and he interviews the sheriff, and he asks him, uh, what makes you so sure that Willis is innocent? Because the sheriff's been saying, Willis is innocent, Willis is innocent, I know he's innocent. And he said, well, what makes you so sure of that? And he responded with four words that resounded throughout the movie. He responded, I've fished with him. I've fished with him. 
In other words, we've spent a lot of time in silence together. We've spent a lot of time watching and waiting together. We've spent a lot of time being with each other. We've spent a lot of time sharing with each other. We know each other. And because I know him, I know what he is capable of doing, and I know what he is capable of not doing. Our Lord Jesus Christ is saying to us today, as our Savior and as our friend, I want to fish with you, and I want, I want for you to fish with me. Let us grow in that trust and that confidence that we can easily say, I believe my Savior lives. I believe he's capable of doing anything, answering any prayer, any concern, and I know it because he's called me to fish with him. Let us be a people of grace. Let us be a people of order. But let us also, friends, be a people of great trust and confidence that the God who was and the God who is and the God who forever will be loves us, saves us, and calls us to be his own. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, blessed three and one, now and forever. Amen.